when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the GOP candidates, furious at the rough treatment they received at the hands of CNBC, rebelled against the debate process. But the first casualty of all this nonsense was a debate scheduled to take place on Telemundo, one in a series of slights suffered by the Latino community. And joining us to talk about it is Julio Ricardo Varela, digital media director of NPR's Latino USA and founder of LatinoRebels.com. Meanwhile, if you've ever applied for a job, you've seen the box on the application asking you to detail any history of criminal conviction. Well, this week, President Obama ordered federal agencies to remove that box from their forms, joining a growing bipartisan movement to ban the box. Finally, the 2015 election is over, and in Kentucky, the big loser wasn't Democratic gubernatorial nominee Jack Conway, though he did lose. Rather, it was the thousands of poor Kentuckians who now might lose their health insurance as a result of Republican Matt Bevin's ascension. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Elise Foley, and Dave Jameson. But here's what happened first. Hey, what up? Hello, this is Jason Lincolns, editor of Beat the Press of the Huffington Post, and welcome, welcome, welcome to So That Happened. Thank you. Your podcast, the podcast that comforts you when you're in pain, the podcast that sings you to sleep, the podcast that wakes you up with coffee in the morning. I'm Jason Lincolns, I just said that. Joining us, as always, is Zach Carter. Whew, just waking up from my another night inside the tent yep, where I live tent, inside the studio. Tent in the studio. I love how we're building mythology around this show. We're like lost. Whew. And also uh, Arthur Delaney is here. Glad to be back from wherever you left me. Arthur, like me, are adults that live in our own homes that we purchase with money. Actually, my disembodied voice has no life outside of this podcast. <laughs> this is the only place where I exist. <laughs> It's true. That would be pretty hilarious. He has no physical presence in the recording studio whatsoever. I would know because I live here. All right. Well, I, Jason with Homeless Student Ghost continues for another week. <laughs> this week, I want to talk about uh, really the rebel sound of shit and failure. Whoa. Okay? And we're going to talk about <laughs> that. a new Goo Goo Dolls song? That's, no, it's a Born Against <laughs> album. We don't prop up the Goo Goo Dolls and their regime on this well, podcast. Got a uh, Goo Goo Dolls apology. No, no, Disarray. <laughs> we're going to talk about Disarray. We'll start with the 2015 elections, Q 2015 election music. Okay, I don't know if there's music there, but if there was, cool. A really, really awful night for Democrats in Kentucky, if not the country. It was, it was, I mean, it's odd that we've been talking about the 2016 election so much on this podcast, but a real actual election took, took place this week, uh, and basically progressives got mauled everywhere. Like, the progressive movement did not die, but basically, if you get attacked by a bear and you bleed, like, really badly, you got mauled still. Merely a flesh wound. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
the the stakes were pretty high in Kentucky, uh, where Matt Bevin, the Republican nominee, uh, displaced Jack Conway, uh, and, and will now be the governor of Kentucky. And he is an avowed enemy of Connect, which is the Kentucky healthcare exchange that they're using to provide health insurance to hundreds of thousands of. Uh, the state's poorest residents. Literally 10% of Kentucky received health care under Obamacare. So th- th- when, when Matt Bevin... Zach, says, it was called Connect. Yeah, right. <laughs> Jason Lincoln, or Jason Churkis did this great story for us a while back where we went to Kentucky and found all these people saying, I sure love this Connect. Glad it's not that awful Obamacare. Uh, that's stuff. true. That's uh, true. But literally 10%, Kentucky is so poor, literally 10% of the state is currently on Obamacare and Matt Bevin just won re-election by promising to take health care away from 10% of the state. Yes, and he received uh, strong vote share from parts of the state where enrollment is highest. It's just it's just stunning. Classic yeah. Thomas Frank stuff there. What's the matter? <laughs> it's, I, I, I tell you, I'm most depressed by uh, Jack Conway's loss because he he has been one of the foremost people in, in state government who's been who's been going after pharmaceutical companies over over the current heroin outbreak that's, that's been ravaging a lot of states, particularly poor states like Kentucky, saying, you know, the overprescription of very powerful opioid painkillers is behind this, which everybody knows is is the root cause of the heroin epidemic. Um, and yet Matt Bevin's campaign was funded largely by pharmaceutical companies through the Republican Governors Association. And that's a, that's a strong Appalachian talking point. You also hear similar things from Jim Webb and Joe Manchin. Yeah, and in Ohio too, John Kasich. I mean, I mean, we, I mean, freaking Chris Christie has this huge video that's been been tearing up the internet this week, talking about how we need to deal with addiction better. A video uh, made by us. Yeah, at the Huffington Post because we rule. It actually looks nice and it's it fun. It doesn't look like crap. And we will we'll come to your wedding and make your wedding look good too if, if the if the money's <laughs> right. Um, just <laughs> so there's one way of looking at it and then saying, well, how good were Democrats ever going to fare in the South? There's another yeah. way of looking at it that says, well, the Democrats hide the fact uh, they, th- th- their national game is so strong, their presidential game is so good, and the demographics and fundamentals of what they have going on in the presidential race are so strong that it, it hides the fact that down ticket, and we're talking about in-house races, and really state government, mm-hmm. state legislatures, county boards, county school boards, the Democrats have no game at all. They have no game at all. No bench. There's not. It's not just no bench. They, no organization. They do not seem to care about winning these races, and there is no plan to motivate voters. There's no plan to provide candidates for races in which Republicans run unopposed. There's no alternative point of view being articulated. There, there's no even <laughs> real wiped out. There's no even real messaging game. I mean, in Houston, which is one of the other big cities uh, where progressives took a huge loss. Uh, on uh, this week, you know, Houston had a had a, a you know sex, race, and gender and sexuality uh, equality thing that was a me- measure that was on on the ballot, where it's just equal rights for everybody, whether you're gay, straight, you know, black, white, woman, man, transgender, whatever. Lost overwhelmingly, like sixty to thirty, because uh, this conservative campaign turned it into like a, a bathroom ballot. Right. Yes. Who, it, was, the, it was. This law will make it easier for sexual predators, male sexual predators, to walk into women's bathrooms and do male sexual predator stuff. And there, and there was no progressive pushback. There, wa- there, wasn't, a, there wasn't a progressive mes- messaging campaign that, that really right. mattered. Uh, now, wait a minute. In Kentucky, I remember hearing the, the outgoing Democratic governor saying, any Republican who wants to come along and threaten to take away Obamacare is going to get beaten to a pulp politically. 
What's up with that? Turnout well, was 30%. There could be consequences for throwing people off insurance. Uh, there surely were consequences when Barack Obama faced months and months of being criticized for, if you like your plan, could keep it, a thing that wasn't true. And the consequences were that it became a huge talking point that cost him an off-year election. It was a major contributor to the demise of Democrats during that election. So there were consequences. The media did beat him about the head with it, and they paid the price. The question is now, now that it's a Republican governor saying, oh, I'm going to throw you off your insurance, will the media care? I would, I would, I would tend to be skeptical because I think the... I, I think I think the media will look at you know uh, Matt Bevin's choice to throw people off insurance as a bold, brave decision that you know someone had to come in and make the bold, brave decision. Stick to his principles. Uh, yeah, you know, stick to his principles. You know, it's like it's like the same arguments applied to throwing elderly people off their uh, earned benefits. You know, fix you know, the debt. I, and also, I think the media has like spent what a lifetime not giving a shit about poor people in Kentucky. So I'm skeptical about whether there will be consequences. He also had a lot to say about drug testing poor people. Right, which is like setting money on fire, setting tax money on fire. Also, poor people, drug drug addicts. They need they need to ick, they need to eat. Well, uh, dr- drug addiction, the drug testing thing actually is connected to the Appalachian drug overdose death epidemic that we were just talking about, and that, Joe Manchin explicitly made that connection. Uh, so perhaps that helped. Moving on to another type of disarray. This is Zach Carter in disarray. We're about wow. to we're about to put Zach Carter in disarray. Oh no. Right, because we're going to bring up something. We're going to bring up something that really bothers and perplexes no! Ben Carter. No. <laughs> no, this is Ben Carson talking. Which is that Ben Carson is an amazing American uh, who is riding a rocket ship to the top, uh, and probably why will are you be doing this to me. Probably will be your next president no, because he is. A super duper genius. Just don't play a clip of him, okay? I just please, if you don't play a clip, that will be. I there may or may not be oh, clip time. My own personal theory is that Joseph built the pyramids in order to store grain. Now, all the archaeologists think that they were made for the pharaoh's graves, but you know, it would have to be something awfully big. When you stop and think about it, I don't think it would just disappear over the course of time to store that much grain. And when you look at the way the pyramids are made, with many chambers that are hermetically sealed, they would have to be that way for a reason. And, uh, you know, various scientists have said, well, you know, there were alien beings that came down and they had special knowledge and that's how they were. You know, it doesn't require an alien being when God is with you, you know? And that's, that's really the key. People may not even be able to explain what it is that you're accomplishing. But they don't have to be able to explain it when God is there. Look, Ben Carson said that said that pyramids, Egyptian pyramids, you know, big things. Those those he knows that a lot of archaeologists think that they were the tombs for pharaohs, but actually he thinks that they were built by the biblical figure of Joseph uh, to store grain. Uh, and he says he also knows that a lot of scientists say that yeah, aliens built the pyramids, but actually you don't <laughs> need aliens if you have God. So, essentially, God built the pyramids to store store grain. And don't listen to those idiot scientists who tell you that aliens built them. Here's what what he's doing here. (laughs) He's setting a trap for the Zat Carters of the media establishment to fall right into when they come out and say, Well, listen, Ben Carson, there are no aliens. 
I fell right into the trap. I you fell right into he it. He ruined like three hours of my life. And where I was like, "How is this man a legitimate political figure?" He's this talking is literally insane. He's talking about the Bible. He's talking about Joseph, and it just proves that the liberal media doesn't understand evangelicals. Once again, I, this man, I think. Inc- I mean, look. There's not just the this this uh, this talk uh, that he gave was from a commencement address in in the 1990s that he gave to a. Uh, it's old stuff. It's, so it's old. But why are you even talking about the pyramids at a commencement address? Why are you doing that? When somebody graduates from high from college or high school, you you read oh the places you go you'll go you talk about innovation and entrepreneurship or whatever, and and then you get the fuck out. You do not talk about whether the pyramids were created by aliens or not. Well, well, ben that is ben Carson's a funny guy, I think. I think but people I, haven't realized that. This is totally bonkers stuff. This is not like someone lying about their tax plan. This is this is not even conspiracy theorizing. This is just delusional nonsense that comes out of this guy's mouth and has been coming out of his mouth for decades. We have to acknowledge the fact that what, what powers the Ben Carson movement, and the Ben Carson movement may just be a scam to, you know, run a direct mail business. That's for sure, and okay. to sell books. But the, Maybe. But what powers it, what powers it isn't his political policy ideas. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's obviously not his political experience, but it's this kind of evangelical following that he's built up. And so, yeah, when he says this stuff about the pyramids, he's just activating that. When he says that Joseph came around and and used it for grain silos, yeah. that's what he's saying. Liberal media disdain is the jet fuel of the Ben Carson rocket ship to the top. Joseph, but why or? would you put, why would you, if you were building a grain silo, why would it be a giant pyramid? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> ben Carson is literally trying to wear Joseph's mantle, which I will remind you. They was found a, dead pharaohs in the pyramids. I remind you. No, they what's didn't. Im- Those were aliens. What's important is that, is that Ben Carson wants to clad himself in the mantle of Joseph. And I remind you, it was a technicolor dream coat that was red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet and black and ochre and peach and ruby and olive and violet and fawn and lilac and gold and chocolate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that, isn't that Broadway? Yes, way, way back. The, the liberal media just can't Many get Many centuries head ago. <laughs> My mom likes Not that. long after the Bible began. This was not the only Ben Carson time warp of the week. The other was... Oh, well, let's do the time warp The thing that really made him famous and rich, Gifted Hands, his autobiography... From, from many years ago, yeah. it, it's uh, the best known anecdotes from it are, are Ben Carson being violent and attacking people, including some friends, including almost attacking his mom. And so CNN went back and talked to people who were his classmates <laughs> and his neighbors. <laughs> well, you'd think maybe, yeah, maybe they had witnessed these flashes of what he called pathological anger. And I mean, he tried to stab somebody, but the knife blade broke on a belt buckle conveniently. That's right. He tried to hit somebody with a rock, he says. That's right. He almost hit his hammer. mom with a hammer. And he wasn't able to hit a person with a rock. I think he made How will have. he hit Putin with a rock if he can't hit any old dumbass from his neighborhood with also, a rock? Anyway, none of these people, they, they all told CNN they had never seen anything like this and that they were perplexed. <laughs> by the stories Ben Carson had been telling about himself. Because according to these people, the Ben Carson you see today is pretty much what Ben Carson has been like his whole life, kind of a pocket protector, sleepy guy. And and which, to be clear, does not mean that the stories that Ben Carson told in his book are false. But 
No one knows about them. But nobody, they can't find anybody who knows about them, and they can't track down anything, anything that he said. And I just remember the debate when he was asked point blank whether he had worked with this company called Manatech that's I, like in I all sorts it. of trouble. And he just we talked about it in the podcast once, and he just completely lied yes. and said, "No, that's total propaganda." Unfortunately for historians, this whole exercise, uh, Ben Carson has basically just set up a, put a rake on the ground with its tines upturned. <laughs> and once again, the liberal media is getting flapped in the face. I just keep stepping on the freaking rake. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. So you're calling, you're calling his passing the question, uh, and it's, it's just more of the uh, unfair attacks. Although, I, I must say, the, the CNN story was very thorough and, uh, and uh, very interesting. All right, well, that's been Zach and Disarray. Next week on Zach and Disarray, <laughs> Carly Fiorina, best CEO ever or bestest CEO uh, ever. Uh, Tune in next week. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. back right now we're joined by zach carter hey welcome welcome to the papaya oh god i just Your woke host. up and crawled out of the tent that i live in in the studio yeah uh, i have to great. say i really wish you would clean whatever is in that tent got a composting toilet uh which is really great for the environment That's but really it cool. is causing some angst around the studio also joining us uh is dave jameson John, our, good to be here. Our senior uh, labor reporter. No, like, it's actually just labor reporter. You're, there's someone senior to you? 
Whoever it is, I don't know. I do not have senior in my title, though. Mm. All right. Well, um, I do. We'll we'll talk about getting you senior in your title. <laughs> How's that sound? I hope I didn't sound too bitter about that. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, a little, a little bitter. Yeah, mildly being, bitter. Okay. If I'm being honest. Okay. Yeah, just a little. It's okay. I don't ask for a standing I, desk or anything. Sure. Just, no. 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 I know. I know. I know. You don't ask for very much at all. And then, you know, just just a little respect. A little respect for old Dave Jameson, working hard. And speaking of respect. Yeah, this week we're talking about banning the box. Anyone who has applied for a job, especially uh, one of those jobs that normal people have to apply for, not the you know high flying elite. Would you be on my board of my my group of dicks running the world <laughs> foundation? But like a real job, you've probably been asked to respond to the question: Have you been uh, convicted of, of a felony? Well. Uh, now, President Obama is directing federal agencies to, quote unquote, ban the box, which is to get rid of this question off of the application forms for prospective government employees. Uh, as we've seen often, uh, some of the things that President Obama does in his own house, is it's meant to signal others out there in the larger community to consider doing the same. So uh, we're going to talk about banning the box today, pros and cons, why it's important to be done why the pushback matters. Uh, Dave, why don't you take us through uh, just the basics of ban the box? Ban the box, the basic idea is that you, you take this basic question of, of what sort of criminal convictions do you have in your past, and you kind of punt it down the line in the, in the job application process. Banning the box doesn't mean this can't come up. It just means it, it shouldn't be the first thing that, that an applicant has to address, because the problem is, you check that box, you, you fill out whatever, and then that, that, that application goes into the, the crap pile. Um, and yeah. obviously it disproportionately hurts, uh, you know, African-Americans. Um, so there, there's just a growing awareness that this is kind of a shitty way to do things and that this, this shouldn't come up so early that, that you should actually get to know a job candidate before these things from their past are, are you know, come up. And it's funny, I have a personal band, the box story. This was like the first thing after college, my first post-college job uh, uh, application process. I applied for a job at, at the Baltimore AP Bureau, and I had to check the box. Uh, I had a couple dings in college urinating in public and underage drinking. <laughs> so I fill that stuff out in the application. A couple of days later, I get a call from the bureau chief. I'm fired up. She wants to talk to me. First question, so what was this urinating in public about? I'm like, uh, I urinated in public. <laughs> She's like... Is this a difficult concept for the like, Associated Press to wrap their head around? She asked if there's anything else to it, and I was like, no. And uh, I'm like, is, is there anything else you want to ask me? I'm actually, She's like, no. And that was it. That I'm was actually, it. I'm actually a little curious. How could there be something else to it? It's one of those charges that's pretty self-explanatory. I'm just imagining, you know? imagining, imagining well, Dave Jameson says... He urinated in public. Eh, it sounds like pretty typical, but what if it's really something fascinating? It wasn't even that good a story. Right, okay. This was outside Coops, by yeah, the way, you, Charlottesville. I mean, you'll, <laughs> you'll, note, you'll note I'm not yeah. asking you to tell I the story. I, yeah. I know it's boring. But it, it was literally, I, I learned... You were the only person to ever urinate outside yeah, Coops absolutely. in Charlottesville, by the way. Absolutely. 
And so that was, uh, I was immediately apparently discarded. We never had any talks after that. And look, this is coming from, you know, a uh, privileged white, uh, highly educated guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Did you even catch the nickname P in public or anything like that? No. It's no. Old, old P in the, P in the public. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, all, all joking aside, this is the kind of thing that is a dividing line for a lot of employers, especially when you have, you know, a lot of people competing for jobs. And we know yeah. that post-recession. I mean, look at high, high unemployment. You got to weed out a lot of people anyway so right. you can take that box and put them right right in the trash bin you know it's like uh, college applications where you like get the margins wrong or something and they just automatically throw out the all right well your essay was too right. long or whatever so i'm not gonna read it it's like a misspelling in the cover letter boom yeah you know, toss them if i put my matt taibbi hat on i'll say i can i can uh, i'll say that one of the things that i think is most pernicious about being part of the criminal being t- caught up in the criminal justice system uh, and, and something people don't really think about is the extent to which you can make a mistake, come be brought in, told what you have to do to pay your time, pay it. But there's always like a little string maybe keeping you back. And it, it disproportionately affects the poor, uh, disproportionately affects communities of color. And it's like they can never, ever, ever get clean. It seems like banning the box would be a, a great step, like a little thing we could do. It's and a, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the employer can't ask. Right. And the good thing here is, you know, Obama announces this. Uh, a lot of states have already done it. There's like seven that, that that have banned it, have put that on the private sector to not that you cannot do that in their states. Twenty odd have done it for their own state governments. And what's been good about this this week is, guess what you didn't see when Obama did this? You didn't see a bunch of Republicans out there freaking out about it. I was wondering about that because, I you know, Republicans have been uh, really um, shifting, especially considering that they were for a long time the party of law and order. Uh, really, had they been, they've been on, a, on, on, on this kind of like libertarian shift to uh, actively trying to reform some of the worst parts of our criminal justice system. But we've also seen just in that naughty political hack way, anytime Obama does something, you know, Republicans reflexively oppose it. Obama wants you to brush in between meals. Uh, tooth decay becomes like the voguish thing. Uh, so that's not, there's, there's been no real blowback on him for doing this? No, and, and most of the, the labor-related executive actions he's done, there has been a lot of stuff. I mean, day of, mm-hmm. they're out there saying this stuff is job-killing, blah, 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 blah. Uh, on this, it's been pretty quiet. And not only that, there's a ban-the-box bill in the Senate that I think, I think it's already cleared out of committee, like, unanimously. So there is Republican support for it. And there's, I think it's all part and parcel of, of like, the growing awareness on both sides of the aisle that, that like, our criminal justice system um, really needs uh, 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 some reform and that people shouldn't have shit like this held against them, uh, you know, for eternity and that people should have the opportunity to to reenter the workforce and become productive members of society uh, without without their past being hung over them all the time. Is there any particular lobby that's out against removing these from? No, I mean, I'm sure. Big checkbox, maybe. Maybe it's like we don't want to lose one important so, checkbox on job applications. So one thing I he didn't do, Obama, that he could have done, he could have put this on federal contractors. He didn't do that, which is a little peculiar because he's done that for other executive actions like this, and it'd be much broader in scope if he did that. 
I think, you know, there just aren't that many federal employees. Right, right. We're talking about a few million people here being much wider who are contractors. Uh, you know, I think one reason he probably didn't do that is it's that he's hoping that Congress uh, will do something. And there are some concerns. I know uh, I was reading, you know, one one somebody from like a contractor lobby saying they want they want this to be they want to be able to have the box when it comes to like security, you know, high security jobs. Um, or somebody in child care say that sort of thing. So I think there's reasonable middle ground when it comes to that yeah, stuff. Sure. But I haven't I haven't seen seen people run around with their hair on fire about this. And look, Walmart's Walmart, Target, a lot of big employers have already voluntarily banned the box. That's that's one reason Republicans probably aren't out there, you know, going after this is because the business community is already heading that direction anyway. Well, they put real leadership behind the Republicans have put some real leadership on. Criminal justice reform too in recent yeah, years. So I expect it. You know, I expect this to be part of their their uh, their their new self conception about crime reform. Um, so, the, so is there a, is there any real impediment to maybe this uh, th- this becoming a more standard thing? I'll point out just to listeners that that in government con even in government contracting, they do a lot of security clearance work. Uh, but in that case, the the vetting of candidates is ridiculously thorough. You can you can you can probably I think put the idea that some kind of looming national security threat about banning the box out of your mind. It's not a concern you should be worried about. But is there any real impediment to this? I think the impediment is the, the same impediment we see with a lot of stuff that Republicans, while they may be increasingly open to this and may actively support this sort of thing, they're really loath to put any kind of uh, requirements on the private sector. So I don't think it's any time soon that we'll see a bill that actually requires all basically our whole economy to ban the box just because I think there's a lot of Republicans who wouldn't go for that. But in the meantime, we're going to see more and more states doing it and more, more and we're going to see more Republican governors saying it's a reasonable thing to do, too. Is there any other part of the actual just the job application process, uh, be it for a government job or, or, or a private sector job? Where you can see that there's just a part of the process that that falls unnecessarily hard on the poor, uh, or is an extant needless barrier to entry for people trying to get jobs from uh, from 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 uh, from the lower class working class community. Other than this, yeah, I think this is the this is the big thing right now. Um, you know, I don't know what else. So this is a legitimate changer of the game, as they say. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think this is a this is a big deal. I mean, this whole this thing's been brewing for for a few years now. We've already seen progressive cities do it, but to see uh, the president do it uh, for millions for what will be millions of jobs, and and to see basically total ex- you know more or less ex- broad acceptance of it, it's it's it is yeah, it's a game changer totally.
Okay, we're back with Zach and Arthur. Hey. We're, we're on a highway to hell. <laughs> or a highway to uh, government funding of basic services. Right. I thought we, we, I thought we were, uh, we thought we were refurbishing the off-ramp to heaven. We are not, <laughs> we're not doing any of those things, Arthur. Oh. Not any of those things. We are going to talk about something that's been dear to our podcast heart, the highway funding bill. We do not have... Our good friend, Laura Barone Lopez here. We will make do without her, wherever Laura Barone Lopez is. We love her. Zach's been covering this not, thing as well. Not even in Yeah, issue. yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, Laura's been doing most of the big picture stuff, but I've been following all the efforts to slip Wall Street friendly stuff into right. the bill. And so some Wall Street friendly stuff try to get into this bill. Yeah, well, they, let's, let's recap first. Slip it in by Black Flag. This is uh, typically a multi-year legislation that needed to be reauthorized this year. That controls a, a big account, uh, a trust fund that helps the federal government maintain infrastructure, literally the crumbling roads and bridges right. that, that you hear about. And you know, without it, it's difficult to plan projects and, and what have you. And Republicans insisted on it not increasing taxes, even though the gas tax that, that sends money to the trust fund hasn't risen with the, 1993, with, right? Yeah, the, the the inflation has eroded the power of that gas tax, and they won't raise that. So they they're looking for other pots of money to pay for keeping this highway. Are there any going. pots of money buried under some of the crumbling roads? Because that would be really fucking. Well, they, they, I mean, they were like going into the Super legislative couch cushions and grabbing <laughs> like crumbs of money uh, all year long. And like if a, if a bridge collapses and there's like wow gold doubloons in the bridge, who knew? <laughs> we could pay for this bridge. That would be like, that'd be good, right? Well, you're going to be shocked to find where they found a lot of money for this bill. Oh, they, boy. they found it in the Federal Reserve, actually. I didn't know the Federal Reserve <laughs> had money. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, the, one of the things that's interesting about this whole, this whole project is it, it really shows how ridiculous um, the accounting process is for government spending and, and how ridiculous the money process is for the American economy. Uh, the Fed, it turns out, just pays this dividend to banks Every like every year, and banks just by being a bank in America, the Federal Reserve just gives you a big pot of money. And surely there's some like more like favorable way to describe that. It's like your Basically, dad has no. to give you food while you're a kid living under his house. So to the, it, it goes back to the very original creation of the Federal Reserve. But the long story short is no. If you participate in the Federal Reserve system, you just get uh, you you get you get a payment from the Fed every year. So so um, so part of the, we have the Fed. To because farmers were being crushed by deflationary price changes, and part of keeping the money more stable involves throwing money directly at banks. Just <laughs> correct, <us>. correct. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, originally, if you if you wanted to be a bank and participate in the Federal Reserve System, um, you would buy shares of your local Federal Reserve Bank branch, uh, and then as virtue of you know because you bought that those shares, you then get a you then get a dividend. Um, Every year, it, it's it's just it's a it's seventeen billion dollars over the ten year budget window that just goes out the door from the Fed to the banks, uh, and it ended up in the highway bill because uh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus had put together their own sort of like pie in the sky hippie budget full of stuff that would be really great for working people and really stick it to Wall Street and rich people, 
and it, it, they've the people who were putting this together just found this item. Now wait a minute, this um, was in the Senate version of the highway bill that passed a few months ago, right? But this this this, this Republicans liked it too. Yeah, well, this budget thing it's because it's a seventeen billion dollar pot of magic money <laughs> that can be used to pay for things, and so it, it made it into the the progressive budget, which was never going to pass, and then it got it started getting picked up in other pieces of legislation because people were like, wow, we can just pay for seventeen billion dollars worth of anything, and all you have to do is take it away from these banks. And so it's in the Senate version. It passed the Senate in the summer. Uh, and then there was a big fight on uh, over it that happened very late uh, in, in the process this week on Thursday, um, in which Republicans were like, how about instead of taking the money away from banks, we take money from this different magical account at the Fed, which is used to, to sort of pad losses that the central bank incurs when it's just doing its ordinary monetary policy operations. You know, it buys securities and currencies, currencies and assets and things like that. Sometimes it runs a little bit of a loss temporarily. It's nice to have a little cushion there. So they're like, actually, why don't we just take all of that money? All of it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much money is in this other pot of magic money? It's $17 billion. So, <laughs> so, is, there, so is the Federal Reserve going to incur like a giant overdraft charge? Basically, it has to be more careful careful about its its monetary policy operations you know, if if this ends up in the final bill because remember there are differences between the house and senate versions so they have to work this stuff out so later. the house passed it this week and the senate already passed it so now they got to get smushed together in yeah. a conference can I, committee can i just add, i'm going to regret this because we're already talking about pots of magic money but <laughs> if we did use the second pot of magic money to pay for the highway infrastructure bill instead of the first pot of magic money is there a difference? That, what difference does it make? Well, it's it's just harder for the Fed to do monetary policy. It's it makes it more difficult for the Fed's basic operations to work. Uh, okay. I mean, they, and banks they, and banks okay. don't get to so, pay all these. So bonuses. the Fed is going to balk at that, and they also use magical money for the budget deal that just passed, where they say it saves. Uh, you know, this provision saves thirty-five billion dollars over ten years, and like all thirty-five of the billions are saved in the tenth year. <laughs> right, which, right, which part of magic right, money would Wall? Routine accounting. Yeah. Right, right. Which part of magic money would the financial services sector prefer get touched? They wanted it to. Go, they wanted to hit the the monetary policy part because they wanted <laughs> to keep their free money that went straight to them. Um, and what? But what's amazing about this to me is not just that the Fed creates magic money and it gets deployed for things, right? Um, but that we, we we are now openly doing stuff politically with magic Fed money instead of just saying, okay, the Fed can make magic money. Why don't we just give it to people to solve <laughs> problems? <laughs> so, so there are things like poverty, which is, you know, a lack of having money. And if the Fed, if we're just going to say, okay, here's $17 billion for banks, why not just, why not just say, here's $17 billion for four people just because we're the Fed and that's what we do. <laughs> um, we could do that, but we don't. Um, and it, it's it's just it's a very bizarre uh, it's a very bizarre reality we live in where there has to be some some <laughs> self imposed crisis for us to take the magic Fed money and use it. Okay, <laughs> but the banks were very angry about now, this. Now, yeah, <laughs> wouldn't the banks say like, listen, if you take this magic pot of money from us, we are gonna uh, really do some interest rate hikes. On our credit card customers. They Isn't say, that what they always say? They, they, they couldn't even muster that argument because they, this is not related to any particular <laughs> product. This is not related to the economics of any financial service. <laughs> oh, it's money's money. fungible, bro. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, money, money <laughs> Wouldn't is... they just like, we're going to funge it off our customers and <laughs> funge it out of that pot? <laughs> There's nothing more fungy than the Federal Reserve. Um, okay, so, all right. Uh, what is happening with the bill? 
So it, it passed, the highway bill passed the, passed the house. What? Oh, so we're going to fund highways again? Yes, but not yet, because uh. it's not, there's not as much funding for highways in the House version as there is in the Senate version. There's this discrepancy on the $17 billion much, dollars in magic much? funding. How much? I, one does, uh, it's, it's well over $100 billion. It's significantly more in the Senate version. Um, and it, it's only a six-year bill on the House side, I think. I think they, they funded three of the years in each bill. Yeah, and then the next three are like figure it out in three years. Okay, and, so, and they also reauthorized the export import bank in the House version, which ooh, did not happen in the Senate version. Right, right, right. So they will have to work that out in a conference committee. So, um, so this se- will all be funged secretly <laughs> by the conference committee in a weird, which used to happen all the time. This is this is a, pr- a procedural thing that has disappeared in the era of the filibuster. Okay, on a scale of steak dinner to prion, if inflicted. Down our cows with mad cow disease. How close are we to having highway funding? I don't understand that analogy I, at all. I, the conference <laughs> committee will go. It, it's going to work. Yeah, we're, we're going to get. I think it's funding. clearly not going to to crash. All right, and flip, you know, bust through a guardrail. And even even if this this even if the banks don't end up having to lose their seventeen billion dollars in in magic Fed money this time around, the next time that something has to be spent in a couple of years, there's still going to be this pot of money there. So that's not going to sit there idly for, forever. That, that will eventually get spent, I think. All right. Budget All right, problem cool. solves. Good work, guys. Join us for National Treasure 4. <laughs> Nick Cage steals a bunch of money that may or may not really exist. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. And we're back. We are now joined by uh, our friend, Huffington Post politics reporter and queen of Twitter hearts. Yes. Elise Foley. Hello. Thanks for having me. I am very glad to have you. And on the phone, joining us again. It's always nice to say someone's joining us again uh, because it means we didn't alienate them the first time they came on the show. And you're Uh, still on. Yeah. Julio Ricardo Varela, the digital media director for NPR's Latino USA and founder of LatinoRebels.com. Julio, how are you? Hey, you guys like me. You really like me. You we brought do. me back. My we, little Sally Field hearts, Twitter hearts, and all that other good stuff. We do. Oh, we'll see if you get asked back for a third time. That's the, oh, ooh, the test. <laughs> that's ooh. the prestige. The third timers. You know, we'll have, like, smoking jackets for all of you people and stuff like that. Okay, cool. so, so uh, this week, it seems weird to say this out loud, but... The Republican candidates for president got mad at CNBC. That's so weird to say out loud. So strange. It's like an uprising at the free market temple. And so they had a big debate about the debate. And then they got mad at each other. But one of the first casualties of all this nonsense that we've undergone was uh, the debate scheduled to take place 
on Telemundo was canceled. It really got me thinking about how it's one more, yes, it's one more kick in the eye to the Latino community, but we have not really gotten the Latino community into any of the debates so far, have we? Um, well, no. All right, if you count the CNN and Espanol guy... To ask one question. About immigration. No, he asked two questions. He That's asked right. one about immigration and one about marijuana. And if there are any two topics that it's like... Hey, Latino CNN Espanol guy, we got two questions for you. And one of the first one's immigration, and then like 20 minutes later, it's weed. That was bizarre. Other than that, there hasn't been, and you know, I know Univision's going to be doing things. I'm trying to think. No, I, I mean, and I, I guess with this Telemundo thing, they have this excuse that, oh, we're just mad at NBC. Um, we should say that Telemundo is part of NBC. Yes, yes, yes. So, so there's that reason. But I mean, yeah, you when you have one <laughs> debate that's aimed somewhat at the Latino community, and that's the one that you cancel, say that we're not going to participate in. Doesn't it's not a great look. I am just stunned. Four years ago, literally at this time, uh, immigration was a front and center, center issue in the in the GOP debates, and it really blew the field away. Uh, this is this is when Rick Perry uh, probably was at his best of the debate was when we were talking about what his role was as a border state governor. And he, he spoke rather well for the first time, maybe in the debate at all, eloquently about the humane treatment of the immigrant community. Uh, and they've here we have a debate. It's not come up yet. And yet we have these storylines. Donald Trump, we have these storylines. Jeb and Marco. Right. You can't really have these storylines, these essential uh, dramatic moments in the undercurrent without bringing immigration to the fore. And yet I don't feel like we have. And I think an important thing with this is that I just don't think the non-Spanish language outlets do as good a job reporting on immigration as Telemundo and Univision. No, do. I except mean, for you, they just know it so much better. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And, and so the questions that you would get if you have those moderators are going to be different and I think better than a bunch of people saying, can you please restate um, your support for border security? Julio, let me ask you this, because this might be like a key way of separating the kind of work that uh, Telemundo and Univision would do versus <laughs> CNN. Um, do people actively involved in politics in the Latino community harbor a great desire to uh, walk up to presidential candidates and ask them five questions about the hot gaff of the week, or is are there actually uh, relevant issues to your community that uh, perhaps people outside of the community might want to hear about? Yeah, no, I, I, that's an excellent question, and, and it's actually Thank one you. of the things. Yeah, no, this is good, and and I'm going to give you, you know, it's one of the things we're actually discussing at, in Latino USA about the Latino vote and about actual issues outside of immigration, and we're actually dropping that. Uh, that podcast this weekend, but it's exactly the question that people need to be asking. What is the predominantly Spanish language speaking community, which continues to grow? And guess what? They're voters, despite of what you know people like Donald Trump or or his supporters might think. There has been a tradition of journalism, of Spanish language journalism, that is a little bit more closer to the ground. And I think, Elise, you make a really good point. The history of Univision and Telemundo talking about issues that pertain to the local community. And that's kind of been going under the radar for years. I think this whole issue of asking substantive questions, asking real policy questions, 
It's just not being covered in the mainstream English language debates. When you look at some of the journalists in Spanish language TV, that type of discussion does happen more. In addition, it, it's almost like, like, what's to lose for the Republicans to just say, like, yeah, we'll be on Telemundo. It, it's going to look good if you were on, symbolically. But by saying no, it's just kind of adding more fuel to the fire. You know, these are not second-class reporters. These are actual, like, serious journalists. It's just mind-boggling. You know, was that was that too passionate for you guys? No, that's I mean, perfectly fine. Am I coming back on after that? No, um, that's great. And I, I would say that, uh, as, you know, has been noted a million times, including by Republican candidates and correctly, immigration is not the only issue to Latino voters. So if they go on and talk to a Latino audience, they're also talking about the economy and education and all these things they want to talk about. So, you know, it's not like they would just be pummeled on something for two hours. But I want to move on and talk about someone who obviously doesn't care about caring a brief for the Latino community, Donald Trump. Uh, and here's here's a controversial thing. It's dividing communities. I can say that in my household, we, my wife and I have two different opinions in this. But Donald Trump is hosting Saturday Night Live. And this has become a flashpoint because NBC did say that because of what Donald Trump said about the Latino community, they were going to cut ties with him. It really got a weird, flexible definition of what ties represent. Well, they cut ties for what? Four months. For a minute. <laughs> I think they literally cut like four Donald Trump neck neckties. But he's hosting SNL. Julio, you've written a, a, The Guardian about this. Right. Tell me your mood on this. Here's the thing about the whole Trump SNL piece, and I did write an op-ed that was, that was well-received in The Guardian, about you know how Latinos are reacting. This is really a symbolic type of, I would say, protest or movement or whatever is being organized. It's the notion of taking the Trump as reality star, you know, megastar, that he's going to get attention no matter what, and putting him in a show that has had such an atrocious track record when it comes to attracting Latino talent. I mean, we're talking about New York City in a place that, you know, where there's a strong Latino comedy presence. You know, 40 years, and you have Horatio Sanz and Fred Armisen and no Latina. You know, I can think of, like, in the top of my head, you know, John Leguizamo, Al Madrigal, uh, George Lopez. You know, they're, 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 those three come to mind just immediately. You know, Cristela Alonso. Like, there's so many, like, talented Latinos out there who could be on Saturday Night Live. So if you mix sort of the, sort of the pop culture, like, symbolism of what Saturday Night Live says, and I, you know, and I, I, I quoted it, I said it was, you know, everything that is white and elite in America, and then merge it with the guy who said what he said, and then NBC sends a memo saying, we're done, we're cutting ties with Donald Trump out of respect and dignity, and here you are putting him as a host in a high-profile show that is all for a ratings grab. There's nothing else. So when people say, like, oh, Latinos are giving Trump attention and making him more relevant, I mean... He's still in the polls. He's still up there. He he's gonna be. He's, he's you know he's a media genius. So you might as well have Latino groups join that media spotlight. So at least you're starting to have conversations that we're having now. And I think people are overthinking the whole like censorship, free speech, and all that. Yeah, there's there the, there there are people who think that you literally want to shut Saturday Night Live down. Yeah, and I think if you really start talking to the organizers, it's, it really is about political voice. If that's going to engage people, I mean, this is going to be my ideal, like my idealistic moment. It's good for democracy, and oh. people go like, you know, it's like people go, oh, Julio's being ideal, but that's, I mean, I kind of believe that. 
I'll say this: another New York tradition, and NBC News, they've 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 promoted this. Their facility, Rockefeller Plaza, is an agora for public comment and debate. They present it as such. And so it is an area where the spotlight shines, and it is a place where robust public debate happens, and that's great. I've seen comedians uh, move from just being comedians to sort of being lionized for saying things that have like sort of this populist appeal, this political appeal. Uh, and I've, I, I see the Internet their new tendency is to try to make saints out of comedians. And this issue is tough for me because I think that it's very, I, I think that SNL does have a bad track record with, uh, with Latinos. Um, that's goes without saying they've, they've barely used them in the cast. They rarely, they rarely, uh, invite them to host. I don't think they, they, they there's, there's, there hasn't been a lot of depth to the sketches that involve Latinos. At the same time, I just think that comedians, if you look to them for your avatars of social justice, they're going to let you down, man. They're going to let you down. Their incentives are completely different. So when my wife and I argue about this, she says, I'm not sure about Donald Trump hosting SNL. I think it's wrong. And I say, I'm not sure about Donald Trump hosting SNL. I think it's risky. I think that SNL's job is to write funny jokes. And I don't think I'm skeptical about whether this will be funny. Well, and I, I think that there's uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but no real choice but to address this somehow on the show by Absolutely. having some sort of skit that acknowledges all this stuff. And I just think, like, I, I don't know. If you have a skit with a, him talking about deporting a bunch of people and all those people are white people, uh, it's not going to look please. great. <laughs> but this is why you gather outside Rockefeller Center to influence this stuff. I actually grew up in the 70s, guys. Yeah, this is a uh, great time to grow up, man. Chico Escuela, you know, I always say like Saturday Night Live when it comes to Latinos, has always been about Chico Escuela, which was the Garrett Morris character yeah. who gets up and goes like, baseball been very, very good to me. And I saw that when I was like eight years old, and I was kind of like, I was a huge Roberto Clemente fan, and I remember telling my mom in the Bronx, I'm like, mom, like, this is stupid. Like, I was eight, and I've actually done, I mean, I, I, I've worked in comedy, I do improv, I've been doing it for, for decades. So, so for me, it's like, I do think, at least that, if they actually did that, it would, it would just, uh, I mean, that's exactly the problem, is that they're going to, if they do address something like that with Trump, they're going to address it from the white elite, like, you know, we don't understand Latinos, it, it's really always been a caricature, so we're going to do it, and it's going to be like, you know, the joke in the room, like the frat boy joke in the room, and it's going to backfire, and they've done that in the past. Yeah. And so, so that's, the, that's, that's what I fear. Um, he's going to do it, and, and like I said, the best thing that's come out of this is like you have all these Latino organizations that have not really worked together, and they're working together to kind of put some more agency to the political voice, and I, again, I still think that's a great thing. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriana Ucero and Peter James Callahan with technical assistance from Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Boguki, Khaleesi, mother of podcasts. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by digital media director of NPR's Latino USA and LatinoRebels.com founder Julio Ricardo Varela, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Elise Foley, and Dave Jameson. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. Subscribe and tell your friends. 
If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, we thank you for listening, and we miss you already.